Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're looking at Judges this quarter. This story is as crazy, if not crazier, than any other ones. Before we talk about it, I just want to give you an overview of like the main idea behind Judges. And the main idea behind Judges is simply this, that Christians are people who believe that there is a God, but they don't believe that this God, the main business he's in, is providing favors for people who are good enough. That when you read Judges, you can only see that the story of Christianity is the story of Judges, namely that God rescues people that are needy and people that are bad and people that are insecure and people that are broken. It's the story of rescue. It is not the story of who's in the religious honor society. This is no more clear than a place like Judges. So pray with me now as we consider it. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray as we think about this story and we try to see what you're doing in it, uh, that you would open our hearts, that we would see ourselves uh, in this story, but we would also see you at work. And I pray that you would work in our lives. Soften our hearts to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, two years ago, a very good friend of mine, uh, his name is Daniel, he was 14 years old at the time, uh, felt a lump on his lymph node. And if you've had strep throat before, you know what that feels like. You feel just, it just felt a little swollen to him. And, you know, initially you think you have strep, but it doesn't go away. He didn't found, he got tested for strep, he didn't have that. It didn't bother him. Uh, didn't, there wasn't any pain resulting from it. It was just like a little inflammation, right? On your lymph node. There are a couple of people who are like feeling their lymph nodes right now. Like, Does strep? Okay. Um, he didn't like having it there. And, but it really wasn't painful and he didn't actually feel anything. But when he had it further looked at, he found out what it would involve to actually deal with this little lump. And to deal with this lump, it was going to involve surgery, and then it was going to involve chemo, and then it was going to involve months of not being able to keep food down, and actually developing a really broken relationship with food, a lot of weight loss, some hair loss. At this point, uh, for the next, for his entire, whatever, sophomore year of high school that was, he had to wake up at 4 a.m. every morning during chemo so that he could eat at 4 a.m. and throw his breakfast up before he got to school. He just wanted to eat early enough to throw up before he got to school. Uh, Never knew how he was going to feel in public. Had to run out at any moment. Uh, Lost an entire football season, which is huge for a 14-year-old guy. Lost an entire basketball season. It was a nasty 18 months. And you know what's a whole lot easier than dealing with lymphoma? You know, it would have been way easier than surgery and chemo and traumatized high school years of vomiting and weight loss and losing his athletic dreams. You know what's easier than dealing with that? Not dealing with it. Not dealing with lymphoma. It wasn't uncomfortable. didn't cause him any pain. It was just a little lump. It didn't even look out of place. But you know it would have been deadly? not dealing with lymphoma. He's in remission today. You know, it's easy not dealing with sin. 
right? It's not very troubling a lot of the time. A lot of time we don't even feel guilty about things or feel sin to be that bad. So it's just easier to leave it alone. You know what's deadly? Not dealing with sin. In the story of Judges, if you've been with us or if you've read the book, you'll note that there's a downward cycle. That there are these repeated phrases and these repeated words, these choruses all throughout the books. And we hear it again at the beginning of chapter 13. But this, these words slightly change throughout the course of the book. And you're intended to notice that. Like, oh, these same words occur over and over again, these same phrases. Israel chased after other gods. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God gave them over to the Philistines. God gave them over to the Canaanites. And what happens over the course of the book, if you read it, Israel goes further and further afield. They're less and less distraught over abandoning God and being oppressed. And so if you've been reading... And Judges, uh, you'll recognize that in verse 1 of chapter 13, something really different happens in the Judges cycle. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them in the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And what's happened in every other Judges cycle up to this moment is there's always a couple of verses after these verses where it talks about Israel suffering at the hands of their oppressors and crying out to the Lord. And when you read Judges 13, 1 through 5, those verses don't show up. And it's stark. The writer wants that to stand out. Well, this is the first time they didn't cry out. Othniel, or the first judge, people cried out to the Lord for deliverance. Ehud, Israel cried out deliverance. Deborah and Barak, Israel cried out to the Lord for deliverance. They did what was evil in sight. They were given over to oppressors. They cried out for deliverance. Gideon, people cried out to the Lord. Here, Israel doesn't cry out. And in fact, in chapter 15, if you go ahead and read it, Samson sparked a conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. And the Israelites get angry with Samson in verse 11 and say, Don't you know the Philistines are rulers? What have you done to us? And his own countrymen, his own people who he's trying to save, tie him up and deliver him to the Philistines. They no longer care that they're actually subjugated to the Philistines, to their oppressors, to the degree that they would actually sell out the one who would deliver them. They're like, we don't want a savior. Don't mess with this. Because you know it's easier than dealing with lymphoma? Not dealing with it. Dealing with it is horrible. You know what's easier than, not de- than uh, dealing with sin? Not dealing with it. The writer of Hebrews warns us against the deceitfulness of sin. It's very persuasive. Sin's very masterful. It's a great storyteller. The writer of Hebrews says, Exhort each other every day. Exhort each other today. So that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because what sin says to us, is sin says, this thing is not a big deal. It says, trust me. You, you can't trust God, the Bible is dated. Sin says, listen, you can deal with the consequences of this later. Sin says, just this once, this is not a big deal. You have good reasons for this. Earlier this semester, I read from Oscar Wilde, a poet that was famous for the active choice he made of, I am going to do what I want, when I want, so I can be happy. And that's how he's known in history. And I read this quote, this is him at the end of his life. I took pleasure when and where it pleased me, but I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. 
And eventually I ceased to be Lord over myself, and I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I didn't know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. We make peace with what's breaking us day by day in little tiny moments. Not in big moments. And we are being unmade day by day in the little things and in the tiny concessions. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, today is the day. You have to start now with the small things. Deal with it now because tomorrow is not okay. When you graduate is not okay. When you get married, when you're an adult, when your decisions have bigger repercussions because you have a family, that's not okay. By then, you will be who you are. Sin will have its grip on you. You lose the battle by the tiny decisions you make now. You lose the battle especially when you think, no, I'll make the decision then. And what will happen is you'll stop feeling as you make these small decisions. As you believe, oh, the small decisions day to day, they don't really matter. And you're not going to feel anymore. And eventually, maybe you already don't feel anymore. I have the quote from the Abel Brothers song, the, the Tin Man, I miss the feeling of feeling. Maybe that's you already. Like, I don't feel beautiful things. I don't feel horrible things. I don't think sin's bad. I don't think things are great. I don't know how to feel anymore. And we find ourselves in the place of the Israelites 40 years later, under oppression, not even wanting to be saved anymore. They didn't feel the oppression to be all that big a deal. They didn't want to deal with the mess that would be required for things to change. Have you lost your ability to care about what's breaking you? You lost your ability to care about sin. It didn't happen in one moment. It started a long time ago. And you know what's way easier than dealing with lymphoma? Not dealing with it. You know what's way easier than dealing with sin? It's far easier to not deal with it. This is us when we see Israel here. In Judges, sin is always depicted as chasing after foreign gods. And that is us today, taking something and making it so central to who you are. We all have this thing or these things. You make it so central to who you are that all your other allegiances are subservient to it. It's that one thing that cannot be challenged. It's your non-negotiable. It's the thing you never debate. It's the thing that guides your schedule and holds on to your anxieties. The things that you can't ever, this is never questioned. And whatever is your God, whatever you take to the center of your identity, is going to actually shape your conscience. It's going to teach you how to feel right and wrong. Whatever you worship teaches you how to feel right and wrong. And so what you feel to be wrong is actually going to change over time. Your conscience doesn't stay the same. This is why some things you used to feel really... I used to feel like that was really wrong. Now they don't feel wrong anymore. We can think of some ways our conscience has changed. And it's because your God has actually reformed your conscience. My second graders guess... uh, It's actually a little bit disconcerting. My fourth graders guess what they don't care about. They're going to think I'm not a Christian right here. They don't care about getting C's. I'm like, does this not bother you? They're like, no. Which actually might mean they're Christians and I'm not. Because it kind of bothers me a little bit, right? When you were in second grade, you know what you didn't care about? I hope you didn't care about getting B's. But now you feel guilty when you get to B-. Right? 
the God of the Bible doesn't care at all about your B-minuses. He doesn't care at all. Any guilt you feel is not from Him. He would never make anybody feel guilty for getting a B-minus. God of Stanford? Absolutely. Right? Stanford is always going to make you feel guilty for a B-minus. There's some people in here that have B-minuses. They're like, I don't know, I'm supposed to feel guilty. Now the point is you're not. Okay? My point is, whatever you worship is going to inform your conscience. We're Israel. We're controlled by things that we no longer hate enough to fight. Right? We're controlled by our ambition and our need to control things. What's the number one killer in this country? What is going to kill most of us in this room? Heart disease. Right? We think that the ambition that we're addicted to won't kill us. That worshiping at the altar of being great won't kill you. That freaking out all year long with tons of anxiety and insecurity and competitiveness and interminable fear all in worship of achievement and greatness and pride and ambition, it won't kill you. That actually kills more people than cancer. It is the deadliest thing in the country. It's more deadly than gun violence. Did you know that? It's killing people. But it's terrifying to think of repenting of Stanford perfectionistic pride. Isn't that terrifying? To think, what if I'm the one person that stops caring? Everybody else won't. They'll keep caring and they'll beat me. Right? It's easier just not to deal with that. You're in the stream. Just go with it. We don't want Jesus to mess with our dreams. Anything but that. Elitism. Right? We love people. We don't love the individuals in our lives. The people that come across our radar all the time. Because it's very easy to love people, to love humanity. But today, all of us, myself included, made judgments and decisions all day long about who we would grant the dignity of friendship and the dignity of being interested in. We don't love people inherently because they're simply made in God's image simply because they exist. We love people like us. Who make us feel comfortable and whose friendship can be advantageous to us. And that's called elitism. And 1 Corinthians and James speak very harshly about it. And it's probably the sin we're most comfortable with. It's the one that we actually feel the least. Maybe you've never even felt guilt about that. In Silicon Valley, networking is a virtue. Elitism is actually endorsed as a virtue. And there is profound and bitter loneliness here that almost all of us experience. And all of us actually socially ignore it because it's actually rooted in our elitism. We don't want God to mess with that. God, don't mess with my sexuality. We're like Augustine. He prayed the famous prayer, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. We don't want to acknowledge the beauty of the biblical sex ethic, right? That it is covenantal oneness, which is marriage, matched with physical oneness, which is sex, matched with joy, which is an orgasm, matched with producing life, which is procreation, matched with society building, which is family. All of those things were intended to go together. But we extract sex from that tapestry and make it this profoundly self-centered enterprise, and it's warping us just a little bit at a time. Because do you remember when it was a really big deal to you and it felt like something that had a lot of power? And now it doesn't anymore, does it? And now it's a lot easier to just not deal with our sexual sin than it is to deal with it. Dealing with it sounds horrible. It's easier to hide the addiction than bring it into the light of the gospel. Things that thrive in the darkness writhe in the light, so don't bring it into the light. 
What about our anger and our bitterness? It's way easier to nurse it and enjoy it and remember how horrible that person is because that feels so good. It's way easier to do that than to think about and engage forgiveness. That's a nightmare. Forgiveness is a nightmare. It's far easier to be angry. We don't want Jesus to mess with that. Generosity, we don't have time or money, right? Can't afford to do that. To be missional. I don't have, I'm not comfortable with loving people and telling people about Jesus. Truth-telling. But in my case, like, what really is the truth right here? There's certainly, I mean, I communicated parts of the truth. What about being involved in the family of God? The church is the family of God in which He shapes and matures His people. Paul says in Ephesians, there is no zero Christian growth outside of the family of God. Can't mature as a Christian outside of the family of God. But it's not right for us right now, right? You're in college... There's a period of my life when I can't do that. I can't connect with those people because they're weird. It's not that we don't... It's not that all of us don't have communities that are shaping us. We absolutely do. We're just not reflective enough to see that we've made some other place our home. And that is changing us. And we're not connecting the dots that the reason we feel distant from God is almost always matched with the fact that we are distant from His family. But dealing with the family, not dealing with the family of God is far easier than dealing with it, right? Ah, like church, bad music, old people, diapers, right? It's a whole lot easier not to deal with it. We have social addictions, we have gaming addictions, we have work addictions, cause addictions, exercise and diet addictions, all in order to numb life. And we're not crying out anymore. Far away. The few places that we do cry out, we want God to deal with the symptoms, but not the tumor from which they arise. We want Him to deal with the symptoms, but not the tumor from which they arise. God, I don't like the stress of worshiping success. So please take my stress away. Like, we love to pray that. Whoa, but I'm not interested in letting go of my hope in success. Right? God, I don't like the guilt and the relational drama from these intimate relationships. Please take away the drama. But I don't want to actually repent of sexual sin, right? God, I don't like loneliness. Please take away my loneliness. But not by me befriending people who are bizarre. I don't like that I'm uh, I'm angry. Take away the angry. But don't actually make me have to forgive somebody. God, I want to have a Christian community. But I don't have to make the sacrifice of loving your family. What is it for you? Where do you want God to remedy something difficult in your life, but you're telling God, but this, but I want you to fix the symptoms here, but don't challenge me on this. Don't make me deal with this hard thing. And that's the one thing He wants. Because that's the one thing that's killing us. And you're afraid of who you would be without this thing that you know God wants to do business with you on. And so we're reaching out to God with one hand, we're holding fast with the other, and it's kind of like a rope swing. You're holding on to the tree, and you're holding on the rope, and you're wondering why you're not having fun as a Christian. It's because you're still holding on to the tree. You're saying, I can't leave this behind. That's why Christianity is not fun, right? That thing is your security and identity, and it's the... Precisely that thing you have to let go of in order to enjoy the love of God. 
You know, we're racked with guilt. Everybody in here, Christian and non-Christian, skeptic, we're racked with guilt and self-loathing and disappointment. It's all, over in us. it's all over us. It's deep in us. But the second we walk into a religious setting, right, RUF, religious conversation, church, we don't want to talk about the guilt issue. We get upset when religious people talk about the guilt issue. They can't, and God can't tell me that I'm guilty. I don't like that when God tells us that we're guilty. I can't, you know... Y'all, we feel guilty all the time, but all of a sudden when we start talking about God, we start deciding no one feels guilty and no one should be guilty. Okay, we're the most inauthentic, like, psychotic people ever. Why are we like this? We know we're guilty, but we don't want God to have any say in it or know anything about it because we hate the idea of trembling guilty before God. It's unnerving. And in our world today, our new principle is if it feels awkward and undesirable and uncomfortable, or at worst, if it feels a little bit judgy, then it has to be bad. It can't be good. So talking about guilt in a religious setting, oh, that's weird, that's judgy. Even though I feel it the rest of the week, this is the one place I don't want to talk about it, can't do it. But here's the thing. The reason you have to talk about it here is because God is the only person that can do anything about it. He is talking about guilt with you for the same reason your oncologist wants to talk about lymphoma with you because he's the one that can take it away. He doesn't want to talk about guilt with you to shame you. He wants to talk about guilt with you so you can understand how dangerous it is and the procedure he's going to use to remove it. This is the one place you should be talking about guilt. Your oncologist is the one place you have to talk about your lymphoma. It's the only place that you have hope of dealing with. With these things. But it's way easier not to deal with it, right? We don't want God to pick the fight. And so what God does in Judges and what He does in our life is He sends someone to pick the fight. When you watch Mean Girls, as we all do monthly, (laughs) it's frustrating to watch everybody cower to Regina George, right? We all just feel that angst. Some, some of us in this room might have been that Regina George, and maybe we need to pray for you too. But most of us, <laughs> right, cowered to Regina George in our life, and you want somebody to stand up to her. But everybody cowers to her, and in fact, even worse, they try to please her, and that's us. We're trying to please the things we hate. We're too afraid to stand up, and that's why no one stands up to Regina George she's too powerful and if you stand up to her and you lose then you lose everything right if you stood up to your idols to the things that are controlling you and you lose you lose everything because they are your everything the Israelites are terrified of the Philistines they would rather serve them than stand up to them the Philistines are the bully they made peace with they said you know what it's easier to placate them than to deal with them And what this is, is this is not a Bible story that teaches us how to stand up to sin. That's not what this is. Now, you need tools for, okay, well, how do I stand up to the things I want to fight against in my life, in in me and in others? This is a Bible story about how we lack the capacity to stand up and fight against and be victorious to sin. That's what this story is about. It's about how you can't do that. You're, You're thinking right now, like... Stanford success totally dominates me. If I just decided that was no longer going to control me, I would come undone. You're right. You don't have the capacity to do it. What if you were the only person that wasn't controlled by this place? You're freaking out right now thinking about the possibility of that. You don't have the capacity to do it. So this is what happens in the story. Samson wants a Philistine wife. 
right? I love all the passages. Samson looked at her and saw that she looked good. Um, I, again, I was wondering if people were going to laugh or feel like the Bible's sexist or something. or I don't know. But he wants this Philistine wife. That's actually not in as important detail as others. Parents are disappointed, but they acquiesce. So they're going to Timnah to get her. He fights this lion along the way. Crazy, bizarre, right? Sees it days later. It's awesome. Samson, I think exegetically you could argue he was the first crossfitter in history, but that's... Another sermon for another day. Um, sees the lion days later. Bees have built a, built a nest in it. There's a hive. Gets the honey. The honey, y'all read the story, provides the background for him wagering with the Philistines at this engagement party. And they bully his fiance into giving them the answer. She manipulates and betrays Samson. He calls her a heifer, which is not really flattering. Um, then he kills 30 Philistines to pay off his debt. This is bizarre. And a lot of times when we read these stories, we actually focus on the wrong details. I've heard, heard this talked and, well, Samson's superficial. We need to learn how we're superficial like Samson is. He saw this hot girl and wanted her. I don't think that's the point of the story. He seems indulgent. He's gambling. He's drinking. He seems like he has anger issues. He's killing these people to pay off his debt. Those details are bizarre. But here's a, here's a teaching point about how to read the Bible. If you want to figure out what the main point of the story is, see where God acts. If you want to figure out what the main point of any biblical story is, ask the question of where in the text does God show up and you see Him acting? Chapter 13, verse 5. You shall have a son and, she, and he will be a servant to God. And what is God going to do with his servant? Begin to save Israel from the Philistines. 14 verse 4, Samson's father and mother didn't know what Samson didn't know that Samson wanted this Philistine woman, that it was from the Lord. The Lord was doing something. What was he doing? He was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. 14:19, the spirit of the Lord. God comes in as a character again, rushed upon Samson, he killed 30 Philistines. If those are the guiding details of the text that are telling us what's important here, then what is God doing? This whole story is about God orchestrating events in order to pick a fight with the bully they were too afraid to deal with. That's what this story is about. Is that God sends someone to deal with our bully? Verse 4 is actually the explanatory verse of the whole passage. God was providing the means for Samson to pick a fight with the Philistines. And Samson, like all the judges, he's teaching us about Jesus. And then we're told Samson will begin to save Israel. Now, where begin is important because we know only Jesus fully and finally saves. And that when Jesus comes in your life, He's coming to pick a fight with the things that control us that we are too afraid to fight with. That we actually might even get angry with Him fighting with. Like Jesus did not hear. The thing you don't want Him disturbed, that's actually exactly what He's aiming at. And we won't And we can't pick a fight because we are not sure that we would be okay if we picked the fight on our own. We don't know if the fallout from dealing with this, of extricating ourselves from these things, if we would be, we're afraid it would be more than we could handle, so we don't do it. And when the one thing everybody knows about Samson is how strong he is. You get more stories of him later. We'll talk about next week of how strong he is. And when Judges is talking and emphasizing Samson's strength, it is telling us that we are like Israel, not strong enough to defeat our enemies. 
But God's deliverer is strong enough to win. And Jesus has come to pick a fight with our sin and with our death. And He will do for us what we cannot do. He wins. You and I are afraid that if we don't serve our idols, we won't know who we are. If I don't serve my idol, I don't know who I would be. If Jesus is your rescuer, I can tell you who you would be. You would be child of God. You would be son or daughter of the King. That would be your identity. Stanford alumni, husband, wife, doctor, founder, Sigma Chi, SAE, Pi Phi, depressed, anxiety-ridden, abuse victim, sexually dirty. All of those titles and identities are meaningless and completely lose their power next to the identity of daughter of the king, son of the king. Jesus can beat what you can't. Because you cannot beat sin by outworking it. You will never outwork it. You'll never, you cannot rage. You can't do it by hedonism, by success. You can't beat it by being moral or religious enough either. You can't beat sin by giving yourself to a cause or a purpose with supreme devotion for the rest of your life. You can't beat it. You can't beat sin in that way. Sin has to be killed, not outworked. And we're trying to outwork our sin. We're trying to outwork our sense of inadequacy and our unloveliness and our unacceptability. And we're trying to outwork our guilt. We're trying to outwork our shame. And we're trying to outwork our self-loathing. And we've all lost every time. We always think we're about to pull off the upset. Right? We're like, ah, yeah, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Ohio State. Third string quarterback. This time I'm going to do it. Right? None of us are Ohio State. That's the sermon application tonight. <laughs> None of us are the underdog that's actually going to win this time. You're not going to outwork sin. It has to be killed. That's why Jesus takes it upon Himself and takes it into death on the cross. He carries our sin. He carries our guilt. He carries our shame. He wraps His arms around it because that's the only way it will go into death. And He takes it with Him in death. It wouldn't go by itself. It would climb back out and cling to all of us. So he wraps it around himself and he holds it tight and he takes it to the grave. Sin has to be killed. You're never going to outwork it. Jesus can defeat what we can't defeat. And the consequence of sin is death. So always think of those things hand in hand. Sin is the problem. Death is its consequence. And death is so powerful that all of our Silicon Valley, billions of dollars in research and data, the only tool we have come up with to deal with death is simply distraction. That's our best tool we got so far. Right? Let's ship the dying people away. Let's work hard so we can't think about it. Let's buy some stuff because that enlists our spirits for a little bit, right? And then let's watch TV long enough to forget that we're going to die. And then we all get surprised when it happens. Jesus defeats what we can't. He took sin into the grave. And then He broke the bonds of death and He rose again so that everybody who is in Him by faith joins Him in resurrection life in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus has come to pick a fight with you. Because He loves you. And all of our sin is a result of the disbelief that we could actually simply and freely be loved. That's the hardest thing to believe in the Bible. Is that you could simply and freely be loved. Because all of our sin is our working to be loved. That is where sin starts.
And Jesus comes to pick a fight with the things that we love, hoping that those things would love us back. And they never do, but He does. And I want to close with reading a little bit of an extended reading from the C.S. Lewis book, The Great Divorce. And I read this a while back. This is what's happening in this story. It's a fictional account. C.S. Lewis is watching a conversation in heaven between someone who has come up from hell to talk with an angel. And that person is referred to as a ghost because they're not fully human because that's what sin does to us. And the angel says to him, Are you off so soon? And the ghost says, Yes, I'm off. Thanks for all your hospitality. But it's no good, you see, because I told this little chap. And the character has a lizard on his shoulder, his pet, his thing that he loves. Said, I told this little chap that he'd have to be quiet if he came here. And his kind of stuff doesn't really fit in here. And I realize that, and he won't stop, so I just need to go home. The angel says, would you like me to make him quiet? And the ghost says, of course I would. The angel says, well, then I'm going to have to kill him. That's a big question, and I'm open to consider it. For the moment, I was just thinking about silencing it. Because up here, it's, it's embarrassing. The angel says, well, can I kill it? Well, there's a time to discuss that later. There is no time. Can I kill it? Please, I never meant to be so much a nuisance. Don't, don't really bother. Look, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. It's, it's going to be all right right now. Thanks so much. The angel says, can I kill it? I don't think that's necessary. I'm sure I'm going to be able to keep it in order now. I think a gradual process would be far better than killing it. The angel says, the gradual process is of no use at all. The ghost says, don't you think so? I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I really will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but I don't feel really well today. It would be silly to do it right now. I need to be in good health for the operation. Maybe another day. The angel says, there is no other day. All days are present now. The angel approaches him and he says, get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You would kill me if you did. And the angel says, that's not true. The ghost says, then why are you hurting me right now? The angel says, I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said I wouldn't kill you. Why are you torturing me? And as the scene unfolds, the hands of the angel close in on the lizard, but not quite. And the lizard begins to chatter to the ghost. And here's what the lizard says. Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. And then you're going to be without me forever and ever. And it wouldn't be natural. How would you live? I know that... There are no real pleasures now. They're just dreams, kind of visions of pleasure. But isn't that better than nothing? And I'll be really good. I know I've gone too far in the past sometimes, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but just really nice dreams, visions, sweet and fresh and almost innocent. The angel speaks in, do I have your permission to kill it? And the ghost says, get it over with. God help me. And in the next moment, he gave a scream of agony, such as I'd never heard on earth. The angel closed his grip on the reptile, twisted it, and it bit, and it writhed, and he broke its back and threw it on the ground. And what C.S. Lewis then begins to describe is watching the ghost become substantial, become bigger, and become a man for the first time. Become humanity what it was intended to be. We don't want to talk about guilt. We don't want to talk about sin because it's easier to not deal with it. Dealing with lymphoma is a nightmare. God wants to talk to you about sin and guilt, not to shame you, but to relieve you. Let's pray.